Let Nothing Divide Us by Jello Jolteon Chapter 7 Here There Be Monsters 1 When they first meet, he takes one look at her and slaps his hands over his eyes with an audible smack. Uh, what's wrong? She cries. You, you, you're not, you're not wearing a shirt. He squeaks out, cheeks burning beneath his palms. She laughs, the sound airy and bubbly. Why on earth would I need a shirt? I have feathers. He spreads his fingers apart to peek out at her, somehow even more mortified that she's laughing at him. But, but what if someone touches you? <sighs> you know... She says, after a few dramatic exhales to dispel her laughter at his concerned tone. I appreciate your care for my personal boundaries. That's not usually the first thing people go for. Different strokes for different folks, I guess? Being pet doesn't bother me. He tries to school his gaze on her face, but it drifts over to the brown and iridescent blue feathers that frame her folded wings. They do look incredibly soft. Two. Uraraka. The name rolls over in his head again, the way she trilled the first syllables stuck to him like nettles. He never thought a family name could sound so pretty, and he wonders why people are so quick to dismiss her accent as crude and folksy. She was from the southern reaches of the kingdom, high up in the mountains in a small farming village, a place mostly inhabited by air elementals. Her parents, she said, once made a living off of building houses there, but since they'd all been built and not needed to be rebuilt, they weren't exactly rich. Said they got a lot of charity from their neighbours out of gratitude, but weren't very keen on accepting it. Why not just move? He asked. She looks away from the stars back at him. I think they'd miss being so close to the sky. Funny that. Erefin de folks too afraid to move. He still wasn't sure, but maybe she just stuck with him for the adventure. Three. Deku. She overhears the nickname while stuck in the tree in his hometown when she first got blown there. It was a cute place, really. All sprawling fields framed by rolling hills and a beautiful blue sky once the storm cleared. The name feels to her like it's befitting of someone very hard-working and encouraging of others, which he is, though she later learns that the boy with aggressive demon horns and an equally aggressive vocabulary who spits it out does not agree. It had been like a switch was flicked, though, when she explained her feelings about it. His mother is incredibly nice, and clearly would give anything for him, and she bakes them both honey bread after he's done showing her their homestead. She's part metal golem, and has the ability, or perhaps it's more of a tendency, to draw the cookware to her. His father is impressively absent, allegedly an explorer who spends his life mapping the coastline and never returning home. Deku shows no signs of his monster blood, even though he'd wanted nothing more in the world. Valuable-looking leather-bound books decorate his room, alongside old posters for local royal guard events. The books, 
apparently bought with money sent from father, a cover-to-cover -cover inked with Deku's research on monster lineage, the ways it manifests in humans, and studies of the locals who were willing to be drawn. Is the kind of work, Ochako thinks, that's befitting of the central library. I'm going to the capital to try and get into the Royal Guard Academy. He'd said. But I don't really know if, uh, if they'll accept someone like me. There must be a hundred better applicants who actually have monster abilities that the guard could use. They wouldn't have your heart, though. They'd be loonies not to accept someone as caring and hardworking as you, Deku. Their reaction is as touching as it is immediate. She watches his eyes water before he quickly reaches a forearm to scrub them away. Er, uh, er, thank you. That means... that means an awful lot. Four. They pitch camp in a small clearing, Deku providing the tent and offering to take first watch while she sleeps. Watch for what, exactly? We're in the middle of nowhere! Are you going stargazing without me? Less people means more wildlife. I'm not letting us become something's midnight snack. She's not convinced, but the anxiousness he seems to exude makes her acquiesce, if only to not eat into her allotted sleeping time. Not like she sleeps well, though, awakening to a gentle shove on her wing and a hollowness in her bones that goes beyond their construction. She keeps a bleary watch until the sun rises, and to her utter lack of surprise, nothing appears, predator or otherwise. They make it to town the next night, at least, so they fork over the money for an in-room and hopefully a better night's sleep. The room's bed is nice and fluffy and... I'll take the floor. Deku interrupts her thoughts. <sighs> Deku, the bed is plenty big to share. She responds flatly. No, really. It's okay. Don't you need to spread your wings out to sleep? I don't and you know it. Do you have something against sharing a bed with me? She feels too tired to really dally on this but she's not letting him sleep on the floor if his previous night's rest was anything like hers. I... He pauses, long enough that she does actually begin to worry he does have a problem with it, and that she's forcing him into something he doesn't want to do. I guess I don't. I'm sorry. I just want you to be comfortable is all. I'd feel more comfortable sharing a bed with you. Back home I'd sleep in a pile with my parents, and honestly I haven't been sleeping quite right since. If... You insist? I do. She says, and if she was maybe a touch more cognizant, she would catch the way his cheeks heat up to a bright pink. But she's not. So instead, she clambers on the bed and flops down on her stomach, her tail flicking contentedly a few times. She leaves enough room for him, and a few minutes later feels the bed creak under the pressure of him sitting himself on the corner before rolling onto it fully. She doesn't open her eyes. At some point during the night, her old habits take over and she wakes up half on top of her travelling buddy, his nightshirt riding up and her face pressed into the soft skin of his stomach. She can feel the rise and fall of his chest, and she's distantly smug that he clearly needed the sleep as badly as she did. One of his hands is threaded through her hair, and her stirring must be enough to rouse him a touch, because his fingers open and close a couple of times against her scalp before they still again. It's enough to elicit a tremulous purr from her, and she goes back to sleep again, listening to his heartbeat. 
When the son peeks through the window a couple of hours later, he's found refuge using one of her wings as a blanket, her tail sneaked around one of his legs, and she has the good fortune to watch him curl further under her when she shifts. The hollowness in her bones abates, and she might dare say they even feel full whenever he wakes a few minutes later, whispers, Good morning, Uraka, and doesn't spring away as she feared he would. The sight of him sleepily staring up at her through his eyelashes is something she hopes gets committed to memory. Five. They shoot her out of the sky, like she's some kind of animal. Because someone somewhere thinks griffin blood is valuable enough to be worth stealing an entire person into slavery for. Izuku doesn't often get mad, or at least he doesn't like to think he does. Kachan had plenty of that to go around when they were growing up. But this? This? This is beyond inexcusable. He pursues them doggedly for days, stewing all the while on how to get her back and how to hit them where it hurts, and his opportunity at last opens when the poachers finally abandon her at an inn to go and find a tavern in a merchant town. He climbs the outside windows, lockpicks her shackles, sometimes the pasture gate locks get rusty and stuck, and boosts her onto the roof. They broke her wing when they dropped her from the sky, and he resets her bone with an awful crunch and a sharp screech of pain from her. Revenge would be delicious, he thinks. But then she begins to cry, and the bloodlust melts from his eyes. It wouldn't be right, and his first priority is his friend. They rock back and forth on the roof, hugging, with Izuku doing his best to console her and assure her that she was safe now. The poachers stumble back into their room, belligerently drunk and incensed to find their prisoner and her possessions gone, and Uchaku cries anew at the sound of them yelling below. The ruckus gets picked up by none other than the royal guard member who turns them to stone with a killer glare. This group was apparently notorious for kidnapping those with desirable monster blood to be sold to unscrupulous elites. The incident shakes Uchaku, and justifiably so. Left felt like he's done next to nothing to help, Izuku's insecurities about his suitability for the position of royal guard grow. He has to get stronger. He has to be able to save her in case there was a next time. They decide to visit Izuku's home before he escorts her home to see her own parents. Unbeknownst to either, they'd been watched. Six. The pantheon consists of eleven deities, five gods, five goddesses, and the entity. There are dozens of elder gods who rule alongside them from the shadows, but whose identities have faded into obscurity. Besides the entity, the god of the road is among the most revered in the pantheon. He presides over commerce, diplomacy, travel, exploration, and the bonds between people. The god of the road is dead, 
This secret is guarded by the select few chosen to protect his blood by manifesting it. Toshinori Yagi, head of the Royal Guard, was the eighth bestowed this task. A run-in with a malevolent elder god meant his failing health could no longer support both his own body and the blood of the god of the road. Now he wanders the country, looking for the next manifest. He ends up in his emaciated true form in the same town as Azuku and Achako, and observes the boy completing his rescue of his friend. Devoid of monster traits, he carries out a rescue Toshinori's watched dozens of trained guards turn a blind eye to. This is the ninth, his divine intuition whispers in his mind. Seven. She feels needy, but the feeling of cold metal at her wrist doesn't abate, and her left wing still has another moon to be spent pinned to her side. She asks Zuku if, for the foreseeable future, he'd be willing to accompany her to sleep. There's no good way to ask it, actually, she thinks as the words exit her mouth. Her feathers raise and a blush paints her cheeks that matches the shade of his. It's just... She backtracks. Not... not like that. It's just that night at the inn was really, really helpful for me and I keep having nightmares in. Izuku has to force himself to maintain eye contact with her. You don't have to justify yourself to me, Ochako. I... He clears his throat. <clears throat> I'd be happy to, uh, share a bed with you. A strained moment of silence passes between them, and then Ochako processes his agreement to her inane request, and her heart flips over in her chest. She pulls him into a hug. Thank you. He wraps his arms around her, his fingers sending lightning up her spine as they land in the stripe of feathers down her back. He's so warm. Are... are you okay? Are you trembling? It occurs to her this is the first time she's truly done this in his presence. No, Deku. I'm fine. I just... I just can't remember the last time I purred like this. Oh, he says, but he squeezes her a little tighter, his touch just slightly more insistent against her back. It, it's nice. Eight. A weary traveller shows up on Inko's doorstep, surprising Izuku when he enters and is not immediately rushed by his mother. Instead, he walks into the kitchen to find her pouring tea for a gaunt man wrapped tightly in baggy clothing, his straw-like hair trailing around his face in two particularly long strands. The man excuses himself from the table and grunts softly when he stands. Young man, I saw what you did for your friend back in that port town. I have an offer to make you. Nine. Uraraka returns to Deku's home with her market finds in tow, slowly losing her unease about being left alone. His village is small and welcoming. The moment she walks into his warm little home, the atmosphere changes. It's practically crackling, and when she makes her way deeper into his house to find its inhabitants, 
she finds Deku face to face with a gaunt man. Deku tips the remainder of a small vial to his lips. The feathers along her spine puff out as the energy in the air recedes. He pulls the vial away, and she convinces herself it's just curiosity about what's happening that keeps her eyes trained to his lips as he passes the little glass vessel to the man. When he wipes his mouth, his sleeve comes away red, and she's suddenly lost and fearful and drops the sack she's had in her arms. And then the air crackles to life again as Deku turns, eyes like lightning, and in a moment faster than she can process, he's at her feet, holding the sack inches from the ground. He looks from the sack, up to her, and then back to the strange man. She follows his gaze back to a face she would recognise anywhere as the royal guard's most prolific leader, the gaunt man now replaced by a giant bundle of muscle with a gleaming grin. All Might. Ten. He trains and he trains and he trains, and at some point he flips her on her back on the ground during their sparring, and he's been at this months and surpassed years of her knowing herself and her body's limits. He helps her up immediately and turns her to dust off her feathers and back, the feeling of his hands affectionate and yet businesslike all at once. She shivers. Gonna take me up on putting on a shirt finally? It's starting to get cold. That's not quite it, she thinks, because her skin feels like it's on fire. She still doesn't quite know what she saw in the kitchen of his house, but she's vowed to herself that she won't press. Even hinting at the subject makes him start acting dodgy. She hopes he'll trust her someday, and shivers again when his scarred hand brushes dirt from her shoulder blade, right at the base of her left wing. Maybe. She finally hums. But more for protection than for warmth. Eleven. More than anything, he thinks, I trust you. He stares at her proffered hand, her dark little talons poking at his skin whenever he quickly takes it in response to the question, and she hauls him into her arms, his shoulder popping at the abrupt action of being yanked into a bridal-style carry, the whole interaction not surpassing three seconds before she crouches, jumps, and begins beating her wings. They're getting out of this mess. Izuku subconsciously buries his face into her shoulder, or her armpit, or something. Really, he's trying his best to shield his face from the wind and not think about which feathers of hers tickle his nose, because she still hasn't put on any kind of outerwear. The noises of a small, angry mob, a thief's guild, recede slowly as Uraraka hauls them both into the air. Once her upward acceleration slows, he pulls his head away from her and looks up at her soft jawline. The overcast sky makes the shadows play gently on her, accentuating her cute, round face. Cute, he belatedly realises he's fought, as they hold each other tightly several hundred feet above the earth. He shifts his eyes from her face and chooses to peer back over her shoulder, begging whichever deities do exist that she can't feel his face heat up or his heartbeat quicken. His distraction over his feelings nearly blinds him to a shadow in the distance, fuzzing out in the ceiling of clouds and slowly drawing closer. They've been followed. Uraraka? She looks down into his eyes, her own bright in the wind tousling her hair. We tail... 
We've got a... There's someone following us. Uraka spins them back dramatically, the momentum of their trajectory giving them the briefest moment of upward lift, just long enough for her to register the presence behind them. And then they begin to plummet. Uraka folds into it, leaning backwards as the earth hurtles towards them. At a hundred or so feet above the treetops, she levels out at a significantly faster speed, Deku cradled beneath her. His heart is in his stomach, or maybe his stomach is in his throat. All he knows is that things have very quickly gone from being thrilling in a grounded sort of way to being flung far out of his zone. The world is still spinning. It's... it's exhilarating! Unfortunately, when he peeks back over her shoulder again, he's graced with the sight of the same bat-winged shadow overhead. And then it glints, replaced by a tiny sun or... No. Fireball. Those are dragon wings. Uraka! There's nothing she can actually do. But maybe... Maybe there's something he can do. Brace yourself! He reaches around her neck, aims his hand, and flicks. Unfortunately, while the air pressure his flick creates is immense enough to blow their pursuant away, the equal and opposite reaction is that they plummet through the treetops, Deku taking the brunt of the fall. The last thing he remembers is the air being stolen from his lungs before it all goes black. Uraraka opens her eyes when the cracking ceases, slowly blinking at their surroundings. It all happened so fast, but she's pretty sure they crashed through some trees. Now? There was a crater. The rich forest dirt is upturned and the trees nearby have been bowled over. The air smells like soil and ozone. Plenty of scrapes litter her skin as she takes stock of her injuries. But all in all, she's had worse falls. A groan shakes her attention from herself, belatedly realising why she's done so well this time. She's straddled over Deku, and he's not looking so good. There's a nasty cut above his left eyebrow which is steadily leaking blood but she more fears what's happened to the inside of his body if his pained breathing is anything to go by. She feels him try to shift underneath her and his legs still seem to work, even if the movement is feeble at best. She weaves her hand behind his head and tries not to freak out that his hair is damp and a little sticky to the touch. <coughs> Sorry. Uraka. He coughs. Tears spring to her eyes, looking down on his scratched and bleeding face. She washes his eyes open, find her face, and the tears spill over, dripping down on his face and mixing with his blood. His eyes are glowing, and she knows him well enough to know that he's ready to get up and keep fighting despite probably being internally mangled. Luckily she's got him too pinned to do that, so he instead settles for reaching up his hand and brushing the tears off her cheek. I didn't mean to get you hurt. Deku, you huge dummy. She sobs. I'm not crying because I'm hurt. I'm crying because you are. He at least has the good sense to look taken aback, his hand pausing mid-stroke of her rosy cheek, which grows redder as she begins to cry in earnest. She leans her head down, obscuring his view of her face, but he can see the way her shoulders shake and her wings droop heavily on the ground, still sprawled out to either side of them. You've been saving me since the day I got carried to your little town. And you've kept on saving me, and you never once let me save you. It's not fair. You keep throwing yourself in the way and getting hurt, and it hurts so much to watch. You keep saving me, but it doesn't mean 
wrong if you keep hurting me. She misses his utterly baffled expression. You keep... what? Why would me getting hurt hurt you? Uraka, please, I don't... We need to get you to a healer. She cuts him off. He doesn't understand because he can only think of one reason why she'd care that much, but she couldn't possibly. Right? Twelve. Right, so your ribs are definitely broken here. Prod. Here, here, here. Ow! And here. Your head looked a lot worse than it was, but it definitely needs to be kept clean. Have your companion help you with that, since it's hard for you to see. The traveling healer instructs. The companion in question sits quietly in the corner of the small tent, fiddling with her claws and trying to look as invisible as possible. His eyes follow the healer's gaze over to her, and his face drops to see her looking so sullen. It's a total departure from her normal bubbly mood, and it seems to set the air afoul. He holds a few coins out to the healer, thanks her, and goes to the corner to coax Uraraka out. She looks away before regretfully taking his hand and allowing herself to be helped up talk to each other. The old crone instructs on their way out, and they wince simultaneously, letting go of each other's hands. Dense as mud. Speaking of mud, the weather takes a turn for the worse about an hour after they've departed. It starts to rain, so they stop under a pine tree on an ancient stone wall. Deku seems ready to dejectedly sit and wait out the rain while getting completely soaked, and it occurs to Uraraka that it's definitely not a good time for him to get sick. The cold raindrops over his head suddenly cease, and he looks up to find a brown wing shielding him from the elements. Some pair we are, huh? She tries. Seems we can't hardly go a week without running into some kind of trouble. He scoffs softly. <laughs> yeah. You know, I never did actually thank you for blowing away that baddie yesterday. You definitely saved our skins. Or, well, mine, at least. So thank you. Did you mean it? Huh? What you said. What I said about my... Er... About when you hurt yourself. Yeah. She pauses, drawing his eyes to hers. Every word, Deku. He manages to hold eye contact only a second before he looks away, face aflame. Why? What do you mean, why? I... care about you. Maybe I should just... She thinks. A lot. Why wouldn't I? He looks back at her like he's trying and failing to hold his breath underwater. He finally exhales the thing in one whoosh. It's just... I keep thinking about what you said, the part about me never letting you save me, and, well... He trails off, scratching the bandages at the back of his head. Well... He twiddles his thumbs and she has to strain her ears to make out the next words. I don't know. I think... I think I need you to save me. There's something... No, Deku, this is the head injury talking. Don't let it come out of your mouth. 
think there's something only you can save me from. Shit. She doesn't respond, but instead leans a little forward, pressing him to continue. He's acutely aware of the way her wing shifts overhead to keep him dry as she does. You, you see, the thing is, I really like traveling with you. I really like being with you. And I don't know how to describe it, but it feels right whenever we touch and... Oh, Entity, that just sounds so stupid out loud and it makes it sound weird, like I'm not just attracted to you because of physical things, even if they're true, I really don't know how to do this. He starts muttering to himself, alternating between looking down at his hand, the one not tugging on his lower lip, and back up to her, incredibly flushed. Her mouth is parted and every breath she takes puffs out in a small cloud. She looks at him like he's made of something ephemeral, like stardust condensed, and she's afraid that if she moves he's going to dissipate into nothing. She's had dreams like this. Her hand shakes involuntarily when she reaches out and lays it on his bicep, and the quiet mumbling stops abruptly. He looks up at her. Dekyo? What are you talking about? Uraka, I... She brings her other hand up to his mouth, gently shushing him with her fingertips. Ochako. She corrects hesitantly, and feels him press his mouth together against her hand. He screws up his face, completely failing to hide the blush that creeps down his neck. Ochako, I like you. She's almost completely missed the fact he hasn't poofed away. But the way the cold rain keeps plinking on her soaked skin, and the heat of his face under her hands when she grabs it, convinces her not even her wildest dreams could live up to this reality. I've never actually done this before, but... She eyes him once and leans in to capture his lips in hers. I like you too. 